Hi, and welcome to the Seacoast Vineyard Church Podcast. We want to thank you for joining us online and remind you to feel free to visit our website at seacoastvineyard.com anytime for up-to-date information on our local church here in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. If you would like to give financially to this ministry, whether that's a one-time gift or a recurring monthly gift, simply click on the Give tab at our website and give however God leads you. Now, we want you to enjoy this message from God's Word. Thank you guys for coming out. It is beautiful. It's a nice uh, change, isn't it, to see uh, last night, I think about 10 o'clock. Yeah, those of you from up north are probably going, you know, we came down here to get away from this stuff. We, but, but if it was only this, right, you guys would be okay, like a little dusting, a little nice and quiet at night, and uh, you guys are used to a lot more. It is good to see everybody here, and if this is your first time, welcome. Welcome to the Vineyard. And we have, we've started a new series that... Uh, we're calling Ordinary People, Extraordinary God, where we take a look at the book of Judges. It's a book over in the Old Testament. Uh, it's a very old book. As a matter of fact, the poem that's in chapter 5, we won't read through it all today, but the story in 4 and 5, which is where we'll be, chapter 4 and 5, is they say one of the oldest portions of Scripture uh, in that uh, poem or that song of Deborah and Barak. And so uh, we've been looking at the different uh, individuals and characters in this book. And we're going to be in this for a couple more weeks. And then we'll launch into Easter. Lenten season began this past week. And uh, I'm always excited as we push toward Easter. The book of Judges is a very, I think, interesting book. It's full of bloodshed. It's like a lot of movies that guys like to go to. Maybe some of you ladies like to go to it too. There's a lot of bloodshed. There's a lot of intrigue. Uh, last week, we talked about a guy named Othniel. It, as far as perfect, uh, as far as being a, an ideal judge or deliverer for Israel, it doesn't get any better than Othniel last week. We kind of go downhill from him from here on in the book of Judges because these people become very much so ordinary people with ordinary problems and ordinary challenges, and yet God still uses them. Now, I take great comfort in that and hope in that, that... God does use ordinary people to do extraordinary things at times. Uh, We've seen in this cycle, we're going to see again today, that there is a cycle that somewhat reflects our own lives. And that is the cycle, it's almost like an addiction cycle. That is that we get kind of good with God and our relationship with God is going well and we begin to hit our stride living for Him and Things get so good that we begin to relax a little bit. Then we fall back into some old habits. We begin to not consider what God wants for our lives. We start making decisions that are bad, wrong. We fall back into it. Sin enters our life in a very profound way. We go into bondage, into slavery, as we see Israel did over and over again in this book. In the book of Judges, actually in all of the Old Testament we get so miserable or Israel gets so miserable in these cycles that eventually they cry out to God and they say, God, we're tired of this. We want, to be, we want deliverance. We want to get out of this. And so God hears their cry and he sends a deliverer or a judge. That's what they're called judges, but it's not like in the sense of the judge that we think of going to court. It's more of a deliverer. So each one of these people are deliverers for Israel. And so he sends a deliverer or a judge in to free them, to, to lead the charge, to get them free from their, their oppressors. They come out, they get free, 
They get happy. Life is good. They thank God. They live life well for a while. And then what happens? The old thing, the old life begins slipping back into their life again. It pulls on them, pulls on them. It pulls them down. God sends in some oppressor to oppress them to get their attention. Then after a few decades of that or ever how many years, they say this isn't working. They cry out to God. God sends a deliverer. He comes in, delivers them. They get free. They live life well for a while until they forget God. Then they fall back into the cycle again. It's over and over and over again. You see it in this book, the book of Judges. And I'll bet for many of us, if we look at our lives, it's similar. But all of this, we can't lose this. All of this in the book of Judges is pointing to the need for the deliverer. Someone who would come and finally deliver people from their bondage. And of course, it's pointing straight toward Jesus. The real judge, the deliverer. And so all of these cycles are just speaking to our lives too. It's just not some history lesson. I mean, I love history. But, but that's not what this is. It's just a history lesson for the sake of learning some facts or looking back. It's so that when we pick this up and we look at it, we see ourselves in here and we go, wow, you know, this sounds a little bit like me. I, it gets kind of good for me sometimes and I get, get my life straightened out and then all of a sudden I kind of fall away from it and things get bad and I get miserable enough that I call on God and God answers me and things get a little bit good and I'm happy and then I forget God and things get bad and then I'm miserable and then I say, hey, this isn't working. And the cycle, the cycle, the cycle. And so um, this book is like, it could be, it could be a movie. And today we're going to uh, read about a lady named Deborah over in Judges 4. And uh, I, I want to say this too. Try to help all of us. I'm no theologian. I'm, I'm a pseudo-novice, amateur theologian. I read a lot of theological works and such. But, but if you look at the Old Testament, if you look at where God is moving, God is moving through the Old Testament. He is taking his people somewhere I love this term that a theologian William Webb uses, and he calls it a redemptive movement hermeneutic. A hermeneutic is just a, a, a process or an interpretation. And he says that in like the book of Judges, in the Old Testament, what we see is God redeeming. There's a redeeming movement in the Old Testament. It's very slow because God works within culture. But he is working to redeem back steadily. And so that's what we see and this is a redemptive movement. So don't get hung up on some of the things that you see. Um, questions like, you know, why, does God, why did God hate this group of people? And then it comes in and wants to just annihilate the whole group. It's like ethnic cleansing. Or is that what this is? Is that what God does? No, he's working within that culture to move culture redemptively. But it's a slow process as he moves in culture. But as you look... He is redeeming until we get over to Jesus and then it picks up speed even more so after Christ comes. And today there's no better example than the fact that God used a woman in Judges 4. Because in this society, in this culture, as you've heard me say many times, women were just property. They were not honored. They were not respected. Uh, You could get rid of your wife at drop of a hat. All you had to do was pick up a piece of paper. Go, I didn't like that meal. You're out of here. Handed to her, and she was out of the door without any clothes, without any food, without any money, without anything. She was out. That was the culture of the day. But God, I hope you can see this, in his redemptive movement, 
is redeeming that whole thing back. And one of the signs of that is Deborah that's in this book. As God moves through history to get things to where he wants it to be. And so we're going to be over in Judges 4. And we're going to read different sections of this. Um, if you've got your Bible, you can turn over there. Uh, Israel, again, does evil in the sight of the Lord. They've had a good, long run of 80 years without any war. That's enough time for generations to come and go who don't remember what it was like when they were oppressed. So when generations don't know what the other generation did to pay for that freedom, to pay for that, they don't appreciate it, so they fall back. And so they've had an 80-year run, but now here come the Canaanites, and now for the last 20 years they have been under the boot of the Canaanites. 20 years is enough time for another generation to come up and go, this isn't working. And so that's where we are when we join uh, Judges 4, 1 through 3. So let's uh, read this and we'll pray. Judges 4, 1 through 3. After Ehud died, the Israelites once again did evil in the eyes of the Lord. So the Lord sold them into the hands of Jabin, a king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Hirasheth Hagayim, because he had 900 iron chariots and had cruelly oppressed the Israelites for 20 years. They cried to the Lord for help. That's a bad situation. Number one, the Israelites didn't have any weapons. Maybe a few little bows and arrows here. But these Canaanites had chariots, not really made of iron, but the rims of their wheels had iron, so they, you know, they could go and they could move fast and it wouldn't break down on them like a normal chariot would. And there were 900 of them. So you can imagine 900 chariots coming down, sweeping in to these defenseless Israelites into their, their, uh, their fields, into their homes, and taking what they wanted. The situation was really bad. And then we come upon this moment in time where God raises up uh, actually, two women, as we'll see. We'll see the, last, the second woman at the end of our sermon this morning. In Judges 4, 4 through 7, we read, Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of, wife of Lipidoth, was leading Israel at that time. She held court under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the Israelites came to her to have their disputes decided. She sent for Barak, son of Abinoam from Kedish and Naphtali and said to him, The Lord, the God of Israel, commands you, Go take with you 10,000 men of Naphtali and Zebulon and lead the way to Mount Tabor. I will lure Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his troops to the Kishon River and give him into your hands. Let's pray. Lord, just pray for your help this morning. We pray you'd breathe life on your word. Bring it to life, God. I pray that our hearts would be open to you, that we would uh, see ourselves in the Scripture and also see the hope that you have given us in Jesus Christ, our Deliverer. Lord, I ask for your help. Uh, the gift of teaching that you say is available to your church, I ask for that this morning. And we ask for you, Holy Spirit, to come and do what you do so well here in our midst. In Jesus' name, amen. So Deborah was a prophetess, a leader in Israel, like I said, highly unusual at this time for a woman to be leading Israel. She evidently had set up her place where she judged and talked to everyone under this palm tree, and it was known as the Palm of Deborah. How would you like to have that, your own palm tree, you know, named after you? And so she set up, and the people would come in and talk to Deborah and say, hey, this is what's going on. What does the Lord say? 
Uh, what do you think we should do? Her wisdom, she obviously was a very wise woman, a very intelligent woman, and her name, uh, if your name is Deborah, you know this, her name meant bee, like a honeybee. And, uh, and she is a sweet bee, but she's getting ready to sting somebody here very shortly. And so her name just reflects her demeanor, reflects the fact that she was very intelligent, very sweet, likable, trustworthy, confident in hearing when God speaks to her. I, when I was reading about her and doing some background information, I was reminded of Joan of Arc. Do you remember, remember her, a young teenage girl who uh, was actually burned at the stake at, what, 19 years of age, I think, uh, because of her being such a strong-willed woman and saying that she heard God telling her what to do. And, uh, you know, some of the stories I've read of Joan are fascinating and the fact that she would ride up to a battle, you know, and the men would be sitting there looking out across the battlefield and she would go, what are we waiting on? <laughs> you know, like, kind of like David when he walked up and his brothers were all there with Goliath and he said, hey, what, why are you letting him curse God? You know, let's take him on, let's go do it. You know, Joan of Arc would walk up and go, let's go you know, maybe 17, 18 years of age. And Deborah comes along, a mighty woman of God in Israel in the time of the judges. Again, this redemptive movement in Scripture. Here's evidence that God is moving history toward reconciling the value of women in the midst of this. And his affirmation, even in the midst of this, of that he will bless and use whoever he chooses, including women, which in this day was highly unusual. She obviously loved God, uh, Deborah did. She obviously loved to spend time with him. And she obviously loved obeying what he said. And so she hears from God. She has watched, uh, we don't know how old she is, but she has watched what the Canaanites have done to Israel. And she's been praying and she's like, okay, God, how do we get out of this? And then finally God speaks to her. And I'm sure she is so excited, even when you read what she says and Four, and then her song and poem in, in chapter 5. You can just feel it in her that she is so excited that God has finally spoken. Have you ever done that? Prayed, God, please, I need an answer. I need for you to speak to me. I need for you to give me some direction. And finally you hear it and you go, wow, awesome. Now you're ready to go. But how many of you know it always involves other people usually? I mean, and there's the rub, right? I mean, the rub is you're excited about it, but trying to get some other people to be excited about it is a whole other story. And you can't understand why the other people aren't excited like you're excited about it. And so this is where we find Deborah. I want to point out just three things this morning that maybe we can take away from uh, looking at Deborah's life and how she handled this. And you're, you have a fill-in in your handout that uh, is in there every Sunday. And you have a pen. And if you want to track along, you can just fill this in uh, with me as we, we move through this. The first one is that Deborah wanted others to get the credit. I find that fascinating. Deborah wanted others to get the credit. She didn't mind. She didn't mind it was someone else that got the credit. When you, when you read the story, and uh, let's see, she sent for Barak, son of Abinoam from Kadesh and Naphtali, and said to him, the Lord, the God of Israel, commands you, go take with you 10,000 men of Naphtali and Zebulun and lead them up to Mount Tabor. I will lead Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his troops to the Kishon River and give him into your hands. She could have got up and gone, I'm the judge of Israel. I think I will go get all the people and I will rally them. But she didn't do that. 
She didn't mind giving credit or giving someone else, giving Barak, who was the commander of this loosely fitting army, which was no really organized army at all. It was just let him go get some men. But she was willing to include him and to let him get the credit for what was about to happen. And I just wonder how much actually could be done, even in the church, if we didn't care who got the credit for what was done. Can you imagine in your life if, if you were always preferring someone else? You were allowing someone else to get the credit. You were pushing them to the front, even though you did a lot of the work, even though you saw where this could go and that this could be a great success, but you preferred that other person step into that. I wonder how much we could really get done if we did that, if we preferred another person other than ourselves. I, something my dad told me that I didn't see for many, many years and still trying to understand, you know, how fathers, they teach you and... When you're young, you know a lot more than they do. Um, it's amazing how much uh, you unlearn in about 10 or 15 years, between about 20 and 35. And then you go, maybe he knows something. Um, but Dad used to tell me, and I thought it was crazy. He said, he said, Tim, don't ever work for money. Work for the person. And I said, I don't get it. What are you talking about, Dad? It's the money, you know? The money. He said, no, 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 it's not the money. Work for the person, the person that you serve. Whoever you're serving... Do everything you can to make them a success, and God will take care of you. And then I got a pastor years later who preached the same thing to us, and it takes me a few times you know, to, to hear God. But he said the same thing basically to us when we were in our, 20, in our early 30s starting another church together, about 15 of us. We all got together, and he said, listen you, listen, you guys, when you go to your job, serve the person you work for. Go and do the best you can to make them succeed, and God will take care of you. And Deborah, who could have stepped right into it because she had the clout, didn't. She backs up. She grabs Barack, and she says, come on, Barack. You can do this. I've heard God. God has said this. Now, you go get 10,000 men from Israel, and this thing can happen. That uh, shows a great sign of humility as well in leadership that uh, is sorely lacking in uh, not just government, but in church leadership many times is where's the humility or even on the job when we serve and all. Deborah was a woman of humility. I was also reminded of the, our founder, John Wimber, uh, founded the Vineyard Churches about 30 years ago. There's a picture of John. And John was notorious for bringing people with him when he would go to speak at conferences very, he would take them along two or three times, and he would go and preach to thousands and thousands of people. And I have a friend, uh, Ed, Eddie Peoric, uh, and he's a, good, he's a good surfer buddy from out. And there's Eddie when we were at uh, Trestles in San Clemente, California a few years ago. We were about to paddle out at Lowers there, a uh, spot. And Eddie was a vineyard pastor for many, many years. And Eddie was telling me a story of how he was in Chicago with John, and there were like 3,000 people waiting to hear John speak. And this is when Eddie was younger, and he said that they were standing backstage, and people were so anticipating John to walk out, and John turns to Eddie and says, you've taught the five-step prayer model before. If you're on a ministry team, you know the five-step prayer model is a vineyard thing that John taught us. And uh, Eddie said, yeah, I've taught it. I've taught it before. And, and John looks at Eddie gives his notes to Eddie and says, go out there and teach it. And Eddie said, man, there's 3,000 people. They don't know who I am. They're waiting on John Wimber to walk out there. 
And, and Eddie starts making excuses like, oh, no, John, you need, you, need, you need to get out there. And John says, no, nah, you'll do just fine. And then he, I'm going back to the hotel. <laughs> he walks off and lets Eddie go out and minister to this large group of people. But John knew exactly what he was doing. Because the Lord came that night. The Lord blessed those people. Eddie stepped into another realm of his responsibility. And I think Deborah is very similar in this when it came to Barack. She didn't mind herself not getting the credit for it. It was like, as long as this gets done. And imagine if you multiplied yourself out like that. If you let other people get the credit for what was being done, how much influence would just build out of the church or out of your business or out of your relationships and your friendships? And, uh, but all of us know this too. It's one thing to be told to go get them and you stay home while you go get them. Sometimes we like other people to go with us as well. And uh, this is your second part of this, is your second feeling is this. Deborah was an encourager. Because Barak was having a little bit of a hesitation problem here. And in verse 8 he says, If you go with me, I will go. <laughs> I, I still think that speaks an amazing amount of honor and respect to a woman at this period of time. I mean, here's this evidently Barack, a very man's man, warrior type of guy who can rally 10,000 men together to go fight. And yet he looks at Deborah, the, the prophetess, the leader, and he goes, I'll do it, but I want you to come with me. And of course, Deborah does. She says, I certainly will go with you. 900 chariots, but he wanted a little encouragement. I think I would too. And I would, you know, somebody comes along and says, God told me you, <laughs> never had that happen. God told me you should do this. And I'm like, oh yeah, well, why don't you go with me and uh, we'll find out if God's doing this or not. It's like surfing, you know, you're standing on the beach and the waves are huge and some guy goes, man, you'd really rip that up. Why don't you go out there and surf it? I'm like, I'll follow you out, dude. How about we go out together, you know, <laughs> we paddle out together. And she had no problem encouraging him by going immediately, not even any hesitation, certainly I will go with you. What a woman of God. So Barak, he rallies 10,000 troops, and if you read over into the next chapter, you find out that eventually it was 40,000 troops as he went to some other tribes and began to get uh, more soldiers together. And... Uh, Deborah says to him, she says, Go, this is the day that the Lord has given Sisera into your hands. Has not the Lord gone ahead of you? Deb Deborah is with him every step of the way. And man, who is your encourager in life? Who keeps saying in your ear, you can do it? You can be the woman of God that God has called you to be. Who constantly says in your ear, you can be the man of God that God called you? Everybody needs encouragers in their life. Everybody needs somebody speaking to them, saying, if God called you, he's equipped you. And not only will God be with you, but I'll walk with you as well. Think about it for just a minute. Who is your encourager? Who believes in you? Who believes in you? Who believes God has called you to much more than you yourself believe. Who? If you got a name, hold your hand up when you have a name. Just stick your hand up when you have a name. Like, oh, I know who that is in my life. 
All right, let me, let's take a few more moments. Only about 60% of us. Think for a minute. Yes, yeah, as, as that name, that face comes up, who is that encourager? Yeah, there was a guy in the New Testament named Barnabas, and his name meant son of encouragement. That was his name. We all need Barnabases in our life. Have you thought of who it is yet? All right, let's pray for him right now. Just right where you are, lift them up to God and say, Lord, they have been such an encouragement to me. May you bless them. May you speak to them. May they hear your voice. May you fulfill every part of your will for their life. Just pray for them. Amen. Book of Acts in uh, chapter 20 and verse 2, it says of Paul, it says, He traveled through the area speaking many words of encouragement to the people and finally arrived in Greece. When I read that passage of scripture, scripture, I realized that you know, we don't have to wait till we finally arrive to be an encourager to someone. It's like maybe when I get where I'm supposed to go, then I can be all that God wants me to be as an encourager to someone else. But Paul, on his way in his journey, was an encourager, was an encouragement to other people. Let's don't wait until we think we've arrived. Well, I don't, some of us think, well, what can I do, you know? Gosh, just a pat on the back or say, you know, I prayed for you today. I believe, you know, God's got so much more for you in your life and I'm praying for you or maybe God has spoken to you in a way. You know, in the New Testament, in this time that we live, those of you who follow Jesus, the Holy Spirit lives within you. The same Spirit that came on Deborah as a prophetess now lives in you and can speak through you to other people to encourage people. Why wouldn't we want to do that to each other? Why wouldn't we want to be an encourager to those around us who have meant so much to us in our life. Everybody needs encouragement. There is not one single person that doesn't need it. I don't care how cocky and self-assured they are. They need it. They need to hear it. And they need somebody supporting them. Don't wait until you've arrived before you're an encouragement. Now, here's the second question. Who do you encourage regularly? Oh, man, that's a tough one, isn't it? Who has God placed in your heart to speak encouraging words to on a regular basis? Are you thinking of someone? Someone who needs encouragement? Someone who could use it? Someone who could use you undergirding them? Okay, when you get their name, hold your hand up. Wow, see? All right, let's pray for them right now. Let's, let's do it in prayer and pray for those that we're supposed to encourage. Just go ahead. Thank you, Lord. I just want to say to all of you, that when you encourage someone, it can have an amazing result in people's lives. It doesn't mean the person has to turn out to be famous or anything, but it can turn their whole 
perspective of life around if they know someone cares about them enough to say so and to encourage them. Let's do, let's do a little popcorn thing here for a second. Somebody tell me who, who was your encourager in life. Real quick, like no sermons, but just like mom, grandfather, husband, wife, husband, friend, husband, grandkids. That's an awesome benefit of getting older is when your grandkids encourage you. That's exactly right. I'm with you on that one, Randy. All right. I love it when my grandson says, Pop, you don't look old. (laughs) What an encourager. (laughs) Uh, it's, It's good for us to every now and then do a little inventory. Look back across your life. Write a note out to someone and say, you know what, even if you're married to them, well, how awesome to leave a note to them and say, you have really encouraged me in my life. I mean, without you, I, I wouldn't be nearly as optimistic as I am or I wouldn't be facing life as, with this perspective. I mean, write those letters. Uh, I did this years ago only because uh, another pastor told me to. It was a project that a group of men we had together to write down the people who had been instrumental in our lives. And my father was huge in my life, but I had a band director in my life from the age of seven until right on out of high school and beyond, who was almost a second father to me. And I got to write him a letter, and I'll tell you, he came by, and a favorite uncle, too, that encouraged me. And to see in those men's faces later on after I had just, and I didn't want anything back, but to have seen in their faces when they got very up in age and to look in their eyes and for them to say, thank you, I never knew. I never knew if I was making a difference, but I always, always was pulling for you. And I was, it makes a difference. So write a note, pray for them, tell them, let them know, encourage them, encourage your encouragers. So Barack listens to his encourager. He listens to Deborah. And she says, I'm going to go down there with you. But she also says, listen, because you hesitated now, the glory is going to go to a woman. Now, as you're reading this story, you're immediately thinking, oh, that's Deborah, right? I mean, Deborah's the one giving him the instructions. Deborah's going to get the glory for all of this. And I love this about Deborah again because you would think that like any well-written story, but that's not the way this is going to go down. She's not thinking of herself. She is still thinking of Barak, she's thinking of Israel and what can be done for the people that she loves. And so, uh, you know, he goes down to battle. He gets 10,000 Israelites. They go down to battle into this valley. There's a river close by. These chariots come storming down into that valley, expected just to run over and to annihilate this army. And normally they would. But you know what? There's your part to play in events and there's God's part to play in events. And Deborah knew that God was going to do something in this to rout the enemy. And so when they flooded down, because Barak went down with those men, this rain squall evidently came. The river overflowed. The valley filled up with water. And then what was an advantage? Those heavy chariots hit that mud. And guess what happened? They sank and stopped right in the middle of the battle. And what happens when you get 10,000 to 40,000 angry Israelites swarming down on you? With nine... Yeah, it wasn't pretty. So they swarmed down, 
and won the victory that day. You see, there's your part to play in encouragement, and there's God's part to play. You don't have to play God's part. He's good at covering where he leads you and what he leads you into. But we have to play our part in encouragement. And so she sweeps that. She's there. She's watching this. Barak's down with the men. And in verse 9, she had told Barak, Very well, I will go with you, but because of the way you are going about this, the honor will not be yours, for the Lord will hand Sisera, that's the, the enemy's leader, over to a woman. And your last fill-in is this, that Deborah didn't give up. I mean, she could have said, she could have said to Barak right then, What? You won't go up unless I go up. What kind of leader are you? Are you kidding me? Forget it, man. If you like being under the strong arm of the Canaanites, well, let's just go back. I'm going back to my palm tree. Yeah, I've got a pretty good gig going. People come to me. I'm the woman. You go back to being harassed by those iron-wheeled chariots. Let it go. But she didn't. She didn't give up. She said, I will go with you. I'll do it. I'll do whatever it takes. She didn't even let... She didn't hesitate. And you know what she did? She did also, she didn't let Barack's hesitancy stop her. Don't let someone else, when they hesitate in something that you know needs to be done, don't let their hesitancy stop you from doing what you know to do is right and what you know God has called you to do. She was like, okay, I'll go with you, but you're not going to get the glory for it now. And uh, so they moved on. If we wait for everybody to get on board in some things in our lives, we'll be waiting forever. You can't wait forever. But you will go, you link arms, and you go with them when you need to, but you keep going. And so the only person evidently that survives this first attack is the leader of the army. I mean, that says something too, doesn't it? Sisera. Sissy. Sisera. I mean, he's got a woman that's really kicking his butt down there, you know, with Barack, and, and here he comes. And so he runs off. Cicero r- runs off. He's hightailing it, man. He's out of here. He's like, oh, my gosh, look at Barack. The chariots have bogged down. How are we going to survive this? And there's this tent set up where these Kenites, this family of Kenites lived. And the Kenites had been friends with the Israelites But then when the Canaanites came into the area, they kind of switched allegiances. They were kind of playing it, you know, like whoever's in in charge, we're going to kind of line up with them. And so the Kenites kind of line up. And so her husband, Heber, he lines up with the Canaanites again. So Sisera, as he comes into that little area and he sees that tent and he sees Heber's tent there, he believes that's a friend's tent. And sure enough, there's a woman standing outside of the tent, J.L., J.L.'s standing out there like a friend looking as Sisera comes panting, probably just bloody from the battle, coming in and just worn out, adrenaline depleted, his muscles depleted, tired, scared, not knowing what's going to happen, comes up to the tent, and there's J.L. standing outside with the welcome mat out. But now, she's not stupid. She knows the tide is changing. Things are changing. For Israel. So he comes up and he says, I want some water. I want some water. I'm thirsty. And she says, Oh, come on in. Come on in. Come on in the tent. And she doesn't give him water. She gives him some milk, some nice warm milk, which is very soothing. And she says, Why don't you lay down and rest a while? Just get, get off your feet. I'll protect you. And, you know, he gives directions. Don't tell anybody I'm in here. 
Don't let the Israelites know I'm in here. And so he falls down, totally depleted. If you've ever been worn out physically, mentally, and emotionally in every way, you know it doesn't take but just a second, and you're gone, and you're solid asleep. And so he's asleep. Now, here's where it really gets a little gross. But, you know, this woman, the women in this day were used to setting the tents up. I mean, these women knew how to take care of business. So when he falls asleep, she grabs a tent peg, and she grabs a hammer, and while he's laying on his side, she puts the tent peg up against his temple, and with one blow, drives it straight through his head and to the ground. Splitting headache right there. There you go. <laughs> Nails him to the floor. Nails him to the floor. Now who gets the glory for the victory over Sisera? A woman. One woman is a prophetess that everybody knows and sits under the palm tree. The other woman is what we would probably call a housewife who simply takes care of her tent, her children, and her family. But God used both of them in a miraculous way. And though you, and if you feel sorry for Sisera, don't, because if you'll go on and read in chapter 5 through the song of Deborah and Barak, you will see that even Sisera's mom basically called him a rapist and a pillager. This guy was wicked. The Canaanites were wicked that came through. Horrible people and had been just reaping havoc on all of the children of Israel. He obviously felt safe, which I find funny in a way. Reminds me of that movie, that, you know, The 300. You obviously don't know Spartan women. And uh, he obviously did not know this woman like he thought he did. God uses both men and women to do his will and to get things done. And this redemptive movement, hermeneutic, this discipline of moving history along is no more profound or clear than it is right here with Deborah and J.L. The question for us today is, how can you be a better encourager to those around you? How can you step forth and speak words of encouragement and kindness? And how can we as a church prefer our brothers and our sisters over ourselves? How can we see that others get the glory and not, not worry about that and actually be happy that other people actually began to get promoted and elevated and get uh, maybe the credit and to become a humble people again who love to see people succeed and to see others succeed. That's what the church is called to do, to be that team that does that with one another and to be an example, I think, on the job and in our homes with our family and our kids, to be that example. Let's pray. We hope you enjoyed this week's podcast from Seacoast Vineyard Church in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. We look forward to you joining us next time on iTunes or at our website, www.seacoastvineyard.com.